My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. From the most expansive perspective of the macrocosm, Kundalini is Shakti, the infinite power of consciousness that creates the entire universe and everything within it. From an interior microcosmic perspective, Kundalini creates the universe of body and mind, every cell and every thought, while holding the potential power to directly know what is completely beyond the mind, beyond words, beyond even the imagination. These kinds of self-transcendent experiences, transpersonal in nature, can unfold over time and profoundly impact our lives. We naturally possess the capability of consciousness to suddenly or progressively go beyond the ordinary confines of the mind-body-self. We all have the ability to experience how transcendent consciousness can illumine things that the ordinary mind finds quite extraordinary. That's really what is at the heart of understanding kundalini as the power of universal consciousness. Kundalini is the power of transformation through illumination, revelation, and an energetic recreation of the mind-body vehicle. It is the motive power of every mystical, spiritual tradition, though each calls it by a different name. And joining us to discuss this fascinating subject is Dr. Lawrence Edwards. He's the author of Kundalini Rising, The Soul's Journey, and Kali's Bazaar, as well as the book I have in my hands, The Path to Radical Freedom, Awakening Kundalini. He's the president of the Kundalini Research Network and founder of KundaliniSupport.org. He's a board-certified neurotherapist, a licensed psychotherapist, and has been on the faculty of New York Medical College since 1998. And he joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Lawrence Edwards.
Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. And with me today is someone who I've been looking forward to talking to for quite a long time. It's long overdue. We have with us Dr. Lawrence Edwards, and he is the author of The Path to Radical Freedom, Awakening Kundalini, among other books, right? Dr. Edwards, yes. this is not your only book. And like I said, I'm very excited to have you on the show today. I just found out we're both in the same state. We're both nutmeggers. And uh, yeah, what a great way to start this conversation. So for folks who might not be familiar with your work or your foundation, tell us a little bit about yourself and then maybe we can get into your story and how this all came to be. Sure. Well, currently, a lot of my work has been focused on training people in meditative practices. And in, in order to do that, back right after 9-11, we had a private practice in, in New York and Westchester County. And because of the, you know, the, the nightmare of 9-11 and how it affected that community, especially of so many people in the, in the trade center, the World Trade Center, I was getting all these requests to... Uh, just managing coping skills, things like that. So I started a nonprofit to make meditative practices freely available, to be able to teach them and, and make them, again, freely available. And so Anamkara meditation, Anamkara is an ancient Celtic term, simply means friend of the soul. And so we've had this center, we had it in various places in Westchester until COVID hit, and then things had to change and we went online which actually made it more accessible to more people. So people can do, uh, go to the anamkarameditation.org website. We have all kinds of free resources. As I was telling you before, we have 150 odd videos up on our Anamkara Meditation YouTube channel. Again, all free, all helping people discover who are you beyond the mind and all the ordinary things that you might identify with that also carry all the stressors and things that can undermine our well-being. Be powerful in supporting people being in, you know, their best state, including their best state of health. Um, so that's what I do. I've also along the way, because I spent years in India training as a monk back in the 70s and early 80s, and was very much uh, engaged in Really what in the Eastern traditions, the yogic traditions, is considered the esoteric goal of all yogas was this awakening of kundalini. Uh, kundalini is a Sanskrit term for the power of consciousness that's inherent to each and every human being that allows them to know the infinite as their own self. I mean, this was the word yoga means union. It means union with the infinite, the divine, your highest self. And all the practices are aimed at that. But what empowers those practices is this innate power of consciousness. And so for decades, I've been engaged in that personally. I did my doctoral research on it and wrote my dissertation on it. I even had a, a, a research paper published in the last year in a peer-reviewed journal um, from the data from my dissertation back in 1986. And just helping people become aware of this this phenomenal capacity that we have that most people aren't aware of. And then when it happens spontaneously seems to emerge, it can freak people out. And sometimes it's really just beautiful and full of the grace that one is seeking. But, you know, change is disruptive. 
And radical change, going for radical freedom, is going to radically disrupt our ordinary sense of who we are. So being prepared for that, understanding that, is really important so that we don't become fearful. We can engage in it and say, oh, this is really expanding my consciousness, my capacities, my abilities, and engage in it in that kind of way. And that's most of my work at this point is teaching that, lecturing on that, writing books on that. So glad to be here and be able to talk further about it. Yeah, I'm already brimming with questions. I'll save my first preliminary questions that I just thought of. I'll write them down so I don't forget. But before we get to that, you said you went to India. Was this a part of maybe a wanting for a spiritual path in life or did this spiritual path find you? Were you sort of confronted with this or did you seek it out? It was emerging quite on its own. And if you read my, my other book on Kundalini, The Soul's Journey, Guidance from the Divine Within, I talk more ethically in that. But I began having what were unusual experiences all the way back from when I was a, a toddler. And it's, it's funny that my family thinks I'm crazy. Fortunately, my family didn't. They were thought, well, that's unusual, but they let it go at that. But I had a very vivid, when I was like three, four years old, experience of this, what I called her for years, the Lady of Light standing over my bed. And this absolutely radiant woman, you know, sort of just radiating love and blessings. And I'm three years old and I'm going, whoa, <laughs> I thought it was my mother. So I started yelling mom and she didn't respond. So I went, uh oh, this isn't mom. <laughs> and my mother comes running in. So there's a lot more to that story. But no, these experiences, you know, they led to my interest in spirituality. They led eventually to my interest in studying and being trained in Jungian dream work and analysis. That was part of my professional training. Deep in my training in transpersonal psychology as part of my PhD and, and clinical work. So it's something that's really informed it. So going to India, India was because I was having more dramatic experiences and a person, a, a person who was a well-known yogi at the time himself said, well, you really should meet this extraordinary teacher, guru. And I did, and then wound up going to India to spend more time studying and become really immersed in the practices. Wow. So it was almost like these strange experiences were beckoning you towards this path in life in a way. It's really fascinating. And partly why I asked that question is because I've noticed that there tends to be uh, a group of people who are exposed to this type of phenomena, whether spiritual, whether paranormal, however they, you know, see it from their perspective. Mm -hmm. and then there's, you know, maybe I would consider myself the, the other group, which is people who are just absolutely fascinated and curious with this stuff and are seeking these types of experiences, maybe to a fault, because I haven't seen mm -hmm. any lady in light and, Maybe that's because I'm trying too hard. But uh, when it comes to your path, was there synchronicities along the way that led you to meet certain people like this guru who said, hey, you got to talk to this other guy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's part of, you know, the word synchronicity that was coined by Carl Jung. 
So part of my Jungian background was, you know, first having noticed it before I knew the term of it, I just go, oh, that was interesting. Yeah, you know, you just have these these occurrences happen that are, you know, synchronicity. They're a-causal occurrences that uh, have a meaningful relationship and, and not causality. And things like that would stand out, including like meeting that person uh, meeting uh, other individuals later on, additional teachers, or coming across the right book, or the, the you know the right person meeting me who needed some advice that I was able to give. So Jung, because he said, when you're becoming aligned with your highest nature, your true self, he called it the self with a capital S, and he said synchronicities become more and more apparent to you. Uh, because this greater consciousness is having that sort of leading role in your life. And it draws the the right energies, the right people, the right circumstances. Some are challenging. I mean, they're not all so wonderful. There are synchronicities that go with, oh, boy, that was a tough one to work through, but I needed to get through that. So, yes, absolutely. Those kinds of events happen and continue to happen. It's a, it's a major indication that you're on, I would say the right track, but I wonder if that is a step too far because I feel like the greater consciousness, as you described it, that compels us with synchronicities, it, I think by default might have our best interest in mind, but there are other forces, uh, you know, invisible to us that may be interacting with us. When you had this experience of the Lady in Light, I imagine this was an altogether positive experience. Uh, I mean, from that young age, you might not have been reasoning much about what exactly happened until maybe later on. But were there any challenging experiences on that same level or maybe confronting experiences that went along with the, the this path that you're on? What? Yeah, that's and that's that brings a, a, a sort of a larger context for understanding it, and that's partly what's articulated in the yogic traditions around Kundalini. Kundalini is a Sanskrit yogic term, but it's for the power of consciousness in, in infinite consciousness, divine consciousness, to know itself and to transform an individual. So it's also known as the power of transformation and revelation. It's, it's synonymous with Holy Spirit, with Shekinah, with the great goddess, with the divine feminine in many different forms. And so the goal of yogic traditions and practices was to become attuned to that and then go as, as one is following the, those both inner promptings as well as the synchronistic ones, as well as having a teacher who's attuned to that and help guide us so that if we're getting lost in the mind, there's somebody going, listen, you might want to reconsider that. <laughs> and it's a, a role of a mentor and a teacher, not an authoritarian figure. So that guiding energy isn't saying, oh, this is all going to be pleasant. They really emphasize the discernment between the pleasant and the good. The, the good is what's going to lead you forward to getting freer and more expansive and come to greater wisdom, greater fullness of your capacity for love, compassion, patience, kindness, all of that. However, along the way, 
We might move through some very unpleasant memories, call them karmas with people. And so the process of purification, which is how it's described in the yoga tradition, in mysticians in general, I mean, we're just we're really, I'm much more attuned to calling it, you know, the, the way of mystics, Kundalini being a specific language and context for understanding that. But when you get familiar with Christian mystics, you know, Jewish mystics, uh, Sufi mystics, you see so much congruence between them. But this process of clearing ourselves of the conditioned mind and even just in this lifetime, the relationships that we may have formed that were based on fear or dependency, that they don't serve us, they don't serve the other person, they may have to go. And that can be a challenge. And, and, and we feel that process of having to let go of things that we were deeply attached to or identified with. Uh, and that's part of this process. Uh, so, yeah, we go through that. Yeah. Yeah, and I ask because I think a lot of people, you know, they wade into these waters assuming that it's all going to be pleasant when, in mm. fact, we are tested and challenged. And sometimes the best things for us are the hardest to endure. Uh, not that we should go and, and traumatize ourselves or lead a, you know leave ourselves open for abuse, but I think that when it comes to these spiritual practices, I think, and maybe this is just my perspective, but it feels like the modern social media approach to these things is very low effort. And, you know, the Kundalini process is not something that you can make your way through with low effort. This is something that quite literally shakes people's worlds up. And, and that's the nature of transformation, right? So, when you took this big leap across the world and went out to India, were you merely just looking to become, you know, a guru? Did you have the idea that I'm going to experience this transformation? What was going on in your mind back then that compelled you to move to India and take on this endeavor? Right, right. Yeah. Uh, and... We won't get into all the detail I do in the soul's journey, but it was a major test because I was having really exquisite, profound experiences in energy and the meditation that I had learned in literally just one meeting at a big ashram with this teacher. And, um, and that's what then inspired me. I was going, whoa. But here I was a professional I was helping to run an inpatient Jungian psychiatric treatment center. I was engaged to be married. I was deep into a training program for both Jungian analysis and some other forms of therapy that would be part of my professional work. And these experiences were so dramatic that, you know, here I am, just a, a guy who, you know, grew up in the suburbs of New York, went, you know what? I've got to give this my all. I just feel like I've got to leave everything. I wasn't interested in becoming a teacher or anything. I just was interested in becoming completely immersed in this and free. And that's all I knew. And I certainly knew from yogic literature because I had already been practicing for several years in Buddhist traditions and yogic traditions so that, you know, I knew what was, where this was headed. I knew the, you know, the kind of yogic texts and Buddhist texts on the state of freedom of nirvana. But, and I was going, that's what I want. I want to live in that state of freedom. What comes after that, who knows? 
But I want to know that because, you know, especially Buddha really articulated it beautifully, and it's often lost in, in how he's presented in the West. He talked about the four immeasurables, boundless wisdom, boundless loving compassion, boundless rapture, and unshakable boundless equanimity. These are the closest you can come to describing this state of consciousness that we're capable of. And that, you know, other traditions, the yogic traditions would call God realization, samadhi states. And I was going, whoa, I've gotten just like a taste of that. And there's nothing in the world that compares to that. So that's why I went to India was for that. And, and very interestingly, when I got there, I mean, literally when I got there, I just sort of headed off on my own and said, I'll find this place. I'll find this teacher. It's the only source I know I'm going to, I'm going to go. My, I left my, you know, fiance in tears at the airport because I'm leaving. Uh, my mother and father, you know, this is decades ago. They were still with us. They said, could you, hey, do you really want to do this, Lawrence? You, why don't you talk to your uncle? He's a Methodist minister. If you want to know God, maybe you should talk to him. <laughs> and out of respect for my parents, I talked to my uncle. He was a nice guy. He said, you know, Lawrence, he says, I wish you had found it through our tradition, but you're talking about this. It is so real and so profound. If this is what's moving you, I think, you know, no, nothing should stand in your way. Uh, and when I got, so when I got to India, I was immediately brought up huge ashram into this great master. And, you know, I do the, you know, the normal of greeting and pronouns and whatever. And he listened, he goes, you know, why are you here? And I tell him, and I left everything. I said, you know, this is what, this is, all I want is God. I want that experience. I want to live that. I want to have little intermittent taste. I want to know this, live this, and serve that in whatever capacity. You know, I'll sweep paths. I don't care. And he looked at me very compassionately, and I was very serious. And he said, you don't have to give up all that. There's no exclusivity. God embraces your entire life. And I was like, and it was like stone curtains were falling away from my vision and my head. And because I, mean, I was serious, but clearly I, I had wrong understanding. And so right away, this is a living teacher. They correct your understanding. And then there's a new level of freedom that happens. And I just, it, yes, he says, this is, and especially this age, you didn't go into it then, I learned it later, this age, householder sadhana, living in the world, is where it's at. This is the crucible for transformation. And this is the time when people who know need to walk it into the world, into everyday life into the halls of power, government, their families, their relationships, everything. Bring that state into every place, everywhere, all times. And so, you know, I was so ecstatic at the time of him saying that. I was going, oh my gosh, but I just left my poor fiance. Maybe I should turn around and go back. You know? And one of my friends said, listen, you traveled halfway around the world, send her a telegram and you'll go back. And spend a few weeks. So I did. And then stayed with that, stayed engaged in that and stayed um, engaging in practices and deepening my studies. Actually left again another time. I wasn't entirely convinced. A year or so later, I was going, maybe I should be a sannyasin. 
And I went back again and left my, you know, this, by then we actually got married. I had left my wife, you know, for God. Uh, and she was like, <laughs> we're still together. Right. So we've been together for 50 years. So we've weathered my, my storms as going off to, to find God when I should just be looking in my heart. Mm. Uh, but that was early on when I didn't know so well. Uh, and you know that hasn't that, but that whole path and the whole being that engaged and saying no, this is, and this is what it takes. I mean, frankly, it's if you want to know the divine, it's you don't dabble at that. You can do meditation. You can do meditation for peak performance training, and certainly I've taught that in corporations. I've taught it to individuals interested in that. And you can get by with, you know, the 15, 20, a half an hour, even an hour a day doing that and get very good health benefits from it. But frankly, if you want to know the highest, whether you call that your Buddha nature, your God nature, your Christ conscious, I don't care what you call it, then you're going to dedicate every moment to that pursuit. Wow. That's such a powerful message, and I really appreciate you sharing it. And, you know, maybe this is just my notion, but when I think of an enlightened person or a monk, I think of someone who has removed themselves from the world, someone who is chaste, someone who is austere, someone who says no to the, you know, worldly pleasures. And I, I imagine that's a part of the process but to hear that no you need to be in the world this is the you know me paraphrasing the message you received right you needed to be in the world to really integrate this divinity this enlightenment that you were you know approaching wow that's incredible and i think that's something that should really you know people should sit with because oftentimes i think people you know, leave that out of their life because they say, well, I've already, ha I already have so much going on. I have my kids. I have my husband, my wife, I have my house and my apartment. I have my car, my dog. When all of that, you know, can be included in this. It must be included. Not right. can be. Wow. It must be. Right. It must be. Wow. It must be. The divine embraces everything because it is everything. It is your wife, your dog, your job, the challenge before you, the pain, the pleasures, all of it. It's a shift. You know, it, it would be easy if you could leave the world and have that state. There's not a geographic solution to being bound by the mind. Wherever you go, there that mind is. Right. And so free it here, free it now, and walk that boundless love the boundless compassion, the boundless wisdom, the rapture. Walk that into your life. Get it in your life. Wow. Now, you're in India. You receive this message. Where do you go next? I mean, you know, do you start, you know, sitting and meditating? Do you go for a hike up a mountain? I mean, how does this process get undertaken? Right. Well, I was already a dedicated meditator, so had a, you know, regular sitting practice. And, you know, the yogic traditions and especially the ancient traditional Kundalini yoga tradition, that's sort of the name brand that people get more familiar with now, but the traditional form encompasses everything. But it, it also is, it encompasses practices of sitting meditation, 
empowered mantras, chants, contemplation, study, shifts in attitude. You practice, you know, what's my attitude towards this person? If my attitude is to this person isn't like they too are the divine, then I have to shift my attitude. Attitude is a practice. We just take attitude as, oh, whatever my attitude is, I'm stuck with or whatever. No, you practice it. You cultivate it. This is part of what mind cultivation is in Buddhist traditions, yogic traditions, mystic traditions, whether one's a mystic Christian or whoever. So you start to see that all these integrated practices, they encompass every moment of your day. And they have, you know, sitting practice. So when I was living in an ashram for, you know, months and months at a time, and I, I wound up managing one of the ashrams that was in Philadelphia and helping to run meditation centers in the United States for the, the foundation, that yoga foundation. Practices, it encompasses every day, which, which means that you start to feel that grace is, in, is encompassing everything about your life. Reflect back to you the presence of the divine or reflect back to you your mind and what you need to let go of so you can feel the presence of the divine because that's always there. If I'm not experiencing it, what's in the way? Oh, that would be my mind, my attitude, what am I identified with? These are the real practices of yoga, not asanas or pranayama or things like that. No, this is about clearing the lens of the mind so we can perceive what's already there, the divine everywhere. Right. And it's so important to see that in, in everything. It really redefines how we interact with the world. You know, this yes. scientific, reductionist, materialist view of the world has really left people, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, in a real weakened state, right? I, and maybe this is a part of a greater cycle that humanity is going through. I've heard about that. And, but I wonder, you know, in this time where most people are prone, unfortunately, to a more material view of the world, is it harder for people to develop this, you know, perspective because of the state of the collective consciousness? Or is it easier? Is there resistance well, I don't know harder or easier. I mean, it's certainly that, you know, people and, you, you know, you, you, especially the, the psychology of yoga and Buddhism, you know, Buddhism grew out of yoga. So they share the same. Uh, Buddhism is to Hinduism yoga as Protestantism is to Catholicism. And so they share a very similar uh, perspective, the different terms and different ways of viewing things. But, but they were talking about you know, the identification of the ego mind is with the material body, the roles it plays, the relationships it's in. So being grounded that for it, physical reality is all there is. That has been the conditioned human experience for millennia. What's happened, I think, with scientific materialism is, well, the successes of science, which are all good. I mean, scientific materialism has its right place and is very valuable. That it should be the only perspective or define what's valid as a viewpoint. That's where you leave the realm of science and go into scientism. And then you're, you, that's not viable. 
But the materialist perspective has undermined for many people their spiritual beliefs because in some ways their spiritual beliefs were immature. I mean, God was the God of the gaps. If I don't understand something, oh, it was God. God did that. Well, then the scientists come along and go, no, that wasn't God. That was physics. That was chemistry. That was this. That and, that. and so the God of the gaps got erased. Well, if your only God was the God of the gaps, then you got to look around and say, maybe that was the limitation of my perspective. And because Einstein believed in the divine, many great scientists uh, at the cutting edge of physics, the most materialist of the sciences, have a very deep spiritual perspective on things. So I don't think having a, a, a real appreciation for the power of science and where it operates is in a way of being able to then tap into what holds even science, what holds the whole material world in, in its context of consciousness itself. Because when you look at the work of Einstein, you know, Einstein's work was brilliant in terms of showing there is nothing material. It's all energy, right? You can't find a solid thing anywhere. It's all energy. The deeper they go, the smaller the particles. Say, oh, man, that's a solid particle. No, it turns out it's just a string of energy. Well, that's what the yogis were talking about two, 3,000 years ago. Einstein's brilliant protege, Sir David Bohm, took it the next step. He said, not only is everything energy, that energy is consciousness. <sighs> now we're right back. The consciousness disciplines of the yogis, the Shaivite tradition, the Shakti tradition, they're exactly saying that. This is why many of the great scientists used to come to see Muktananda when he was in Oakland and the ashram there. They'd come over from Stanford and the university at Stanford and they'd talk, they'd talk to them and he'd be talking Shaivism and they'd be going, oh, we're on the same page. So, so if we have the right understanding, we can get past the limited mind. The limited mind can, you know, jam itself up no matter what. It gets caught up in uh, the concrete nature of beliefs. And thinking concretely, well, that's a real danger for our mind. And concrete thinking, well, that's the basis of fundamentalism. It's the inability to take what's symbolic as pointing beyond itself. It's symbolic. Taking it as concrete and literal into fundamentalism. And there are yogis who are fundamentalists about chakras, and there are fundamentalists in every religious sect, but it's that concrete thinking that gets in the way, paradigm itself. Yeah. Yeah, I think that is, you know, the, the materialism isn't maybe as I was saying before, the, this pressing issue as much as fundamentalism is and, and was. I mean, yeah, this this is something that I think if you look back in history, you find causing a lot of problems if we're going to put a cause behind something, mm -hmm. right? And it's so amazing because most people take this all for granted. They think that we're at the height of human progress when very cursory glance at Hinduism, yoga, and Buddhism shows that these very advanced concepts were all contemplated and thoroughly investigated thousands of years ago. And I really, yeah, it's so amazing how this conversation can fold into 
really seemingly unrelated conversations that I've had on this show because it, as you said, it pre it's imminent. I maybe if that's the right word for it, right? It's imminent. It's something Mm -hmm. that, you know, consciousness pre emanates everything. It's a part of everything. It's the root. Right. But that's one of the differences, you know, when we talk about a materialist perspective like science and the consciousness disciplines like the mystic traditions and especially the Eastern mystic traditions, scientific materialism, one of why it's reductionistic, it wants to reduce everything to a physical phenomenon. And so it takes the subtle and says there's a physical gross level on which produces that. So think of a thought, a consciousness. Consciousness in science is an outcome of the firing of neurons. And so you're looking for a material cause for this subtle phenomenon called consciousness. The consciousness discipline say, no, that's completely, you've got that backwards. Consciousness creates the material world. Consciousness is first. It evolves and produces as an expression of itself and its boundless creativity and its ability to know everything. Right. It knows it by becoming it, by manifesting it, by inhabiting it, by being it. Mm-hmm. That's what we gain access to in these states of samadhi, is knowing that directly, not a concept, not just a set of words. And so a very different approach. Uh, and so the consciousness disciplines go, well, Materialism is a phase of understanding that the evolution of an individual's consciousness across lifetimes goes through that kind of materialist phase for many lifetimes because it's part of what that individual's consciousness is exploring. What is it to be a man, a woman, this gender, non-gender, to be a bug, to be a, an animal, to be whatever? They're very wide in scope to say, oh, we're exploring being everything. And then in that evolutionary process, we get to a point where we go, I've become it all. I've experienced it all. We don't know this consciously to begin with, but I remember I was something greater. I was, and eventually we come to know we were that infinite consciousness that became all the particulars without losing its infinite nature. I want to know that infinite once again. That's where their soul across this process of evolution across lifetimes. In the yogic tradition, the first part of going out and becoming forms is called the sovereignty phrase, means taking on forms. Then when that ripeness happens and we're ready to awake and start to go, wait a minute, I think it's time to shed identification with all these forms. Then the nivriti phase, the no forms, letting go of forms, releasing forms, getting free of being identified solely with a form. That's what unfolds, and that's what marks the time in a soul's journey for that more and more expanded knowledge. Wow. Right, and I think within this technological framework, people trying to make sense of these things from one lifetime, they come up with ideas like, well, our subconscious predetermines our free will and you know some people are non-player characters other people you know they just they're just like background programming in your Mm -hmm. realm and i wonder 
how this yogic perspective sees that because it feels to me like you know our they're talking about an idea like npc non-player character in this you know greater simulation when it could it be that this individual is experiencing that maybe very dim form of consciousness dim from my perspective but from that perspective of maybe just going along with the nine to five, watching sports, you know, not really contemplating their place in the universe. That may be the perfect situation for that individual in this lifetime. And then maybe the next lifetime they're, you know, contemplating oh, yeah. a little wider idea, right? Do, do you get where I'm trying to angle at here? Because there's yeah. this whole conversation right. from folks like Sam Harris that, oh, well, we don't have free will and it's all just, you know, consciousness, you know, these nerves firing in our brain. What are your thoughts on that? Right. The sense of evolution of the in the soul's journey across lifetimes. And that's why my first book was The Soul's Journey, Guidance from the Divine Within is Kundalini. So that's how that's all tied together in that book. And no, you can be fulfilling your exact soul's purpose by being a cash potato. Somebody else may have all kinds of judgments about that, but your soul could feel quite congruent. And that's not everybody has incarnated in this particular life at this particular time to know the infinite as themselves. Mm. That already presupposes a evolutionary process that has unfolded. And before it even becomes conscious of I'm going to engage in a practice, the Eastern traditions say even to become interested, even to by seeming accident to have walked past a temple while a chant was being done. So that's no accident. That soul was there at that time to hear that chant and hear that mantra. Whether they did anything with it or not, it's going to have an impact on their soul's journey. So they take a much wider view and a more graceful view that life is grace unfolding. And the soul's journey across lifetimes is held in that divine perspective. But your divine self knows just where that evolutionary process is now, what's coming to you now that's facilitating that, how that's going to unfold, and that, you know, that process will continue for many lifetimes. And it doesn't have to meet the judgments of somebody outside who may not have a very enlightened perspective. Right, right. And yeah, I think that ends up being the case in some of these models or paradigms that try to say we're living in a simulation it seems to make sense from maybe your first person perspective but then you have to take into account everybody else's first person perspective and i think that's where you maybe have more of an advantage explaining things through this lens of understanding mm. that we're all on our own personal journey and reality may sort of conform based on that. What are your thoughts on that? Do you tend to subscribe to that, that we're in a realm that is predestined? Or do you think there's more operative free will really taking the drive there? Yeah, I think that's, I think it, it sidetracks people mm. when they get into that. Because in terms of sadhana practice. Sadhana is sort of the sum total of spiritual practices one is doing. And so like in Kundalini sadhana, yoga sadhana, even, you know, Buddhist sadhana, 
I had the privilege to study with some great Buddhists. There's a mental discipline around where does your mind wander off to and where, what, what curves. There are all kinds of speculative dead ends that one could literally spend lifetimes in. Mm. And what has that got to do with coming to know the infinite here and now? What has it got to do with knowing your Buddha nature here and now? What has it got to know to do with knowing the divine as the fullness of your being here and now and as all of reality? If I'm entertaining thoughts about, you know, is this a realm and we're all avatars and this and that, I am not fulfilling that intent to know. So the practices give a focus about intention and attention, because it's all about attention. In the end, it is all about attention. All practices make use of attention, and it's attention. Buddha saying, as you think, so you become. So watch your thoughts with care, he said. Of compassion for all beings. It's about where is our attention going and what's the intent behind it? And how does that open us to these boundless qualities that mystics across traditions have reported back to us? It's like having a longitudinal study that was replicated for thousands of years by great beings. That's the science of spirituality. They said, I'll follow this recipe. Where does it take me? It took me to the same place Buddha got to. Oh, it took me to the same place as Shankaracharya got me. You know, we're replicating the experiment by doing the practices, controlling the conditions, and then getting the outcome of this consciousness that embraces everything. So why do I want to throw extraneous contaminating principles into my experiment? Well, we know, even from science, that derails the research. So we become discriminating about where does my mind go? For what reason? What am I avoiding? What am I seeking? What am I going towards? My attention is the most valuable commodity there is. Your attention is the most, why advertisers spend, you know, millions of dollars for 30 seconds of advertising time in the Super Bowl or something? Because they want your attention and they want to manipulate it and get you to buy something with it. But it's because your attention is there. That's what they're paying for. So why give it away for free? Why give it away for nothing? Where are you doing? What's going on? Because as we think, so we become. So there's a yogic discipline around looking at what kinds of thought processes do we even entertain? For what purpose? In terms of being one-pointed on coming to the highest for yourself. If we're just speculative, we want to be a philosopher, okay, we can speculate about all kinds of things. But if you're going to be a sadhu, if you're going to be somebody dedicated to the path, you then really engage in a level of mental discipline that keeps you very focused. Right, right. And you write about cultivating discrimination and how important mm -hmm. this is. And yeah, I'm glad we got to this point because in the world of advertisers, television, phones in our pockets, and all these social media apps, there's thousands of distractions in the you know click of a button waiting there for you to take all your time away and you know really i think when it comes to yoga you know because i can't speak for buddhism or hinduism i don't know enough about 
those total religions because there there might be missionary Buddhists and mm-hmm. missionary Hindus, but with Christian missionaries, there's like this impulse to get everybody into one belief group. Everybody mm-hmm. needs to believe this because this big thing's going to happen and we all need to believe this, right? Hinduism, yoga doesn't seem to have that push. It doesn't seem to have this anxiety about what others believe. Can we talk about that and, and maybe mm-hmm. why that is? Because it definitely it makes me like yoga more than maybe a, a religion that would tell me, oh, no, you need to believe this. <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's true. I mean, there's a recognition in the Hindu tradition, Hindu yoga tradition, that God wears so many different faces. It was what was so puzzling to, you know, you, you think of the colonial powers invading India, whether it was the Portuguese, the British, whatever, but they're all, they tended to all be Christian nations. And what they did to Hindu temples, and you see the ruins there, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And it was because their perspective was so narrow, so limited. And here they encountered this much older culture and perspective on God that said, God can wear all kinds of faces. We can love God. We can love God in the form of a goddess. It's all the divine. It's all this. There's all these different ones. Now, it's not to say that even within the Hindu perspective, there aren't people who get very locked in. I'm a Shaivite, not a Vaishnavite. I'm a Vaishnavite. There's that. But the perspective recognized a maturity that happens to see that, oh, really interested, there's God without form. That's the absolute. That's the Godhead. And there's God with form. Oh, that's countless forms. Oh, you love the form that looks like that? I may like this other form better, but not because it's more divine. There's nothing that's one thing is more divine than the other. Once you see, and this is the revelation to Christian mystics, there's a beautiful poem by St. John of the Cross where he writes about how through, you know, grace, he was given the vision to see through God's eyes, literally. And he was, when I saw through God's eyes, I saw all God sees is himself. God sees everything as God. There is nothing else. And then he laments in his poem, oh, why hasn't my mother church taught this? All there is God. That is the vision of mystics across traditions. When you come to know, you know all there is the one. If you have the glasses on that differentiate that, into others, then you're hiding behind those glasses of delusion. Right, right. And this is the simple, beautiful truth that I really, you know, I don't want to harp on it because I think that it's so eloquent, simply put, but it's something that's there at the end of seemingly every mystical path. And, you know, Maybe anthropologists want to call that, oh, well, that's some sort of diffusionism. You're just trying to see everything as the same. But let's look from this very high up down perspective. It's all consciousness. So why wouldn't the structure of consciousness lead us in the same spiritual, along the same spiritual trajectory? I mean, 
it seems to make really rational, reasonable sense that way. When you put it that, oh, all these mystics, they might not start off with the same rule book, but they eventually end up at the same result because that's just how this consciousness is structured. It's because it is the very nature of consciousness. Right. And once you get past the, the differentiating, limiting aspects that are mind and enter into this universal field of consciousness that we can call God, we can call the transcendent function, we can call it the transcendent self, we can call it Brahman, we can call it Bodhicitta, we can call it Buddha nature. You can call it all different names, but the experience, that's what the mystics wanted everybody to have. That's what the yogis and the Buddhist traditions, they're all about the lived experience. They're about, no, this is here now, lived here now. You live it here now. You come to know it here now. You don't rely on Buddha who knew it 2,500 years ago or some other yogi knew it, you know, 200 years ago. You, how are that? It's one of the major mantras, what's called the Mahavakya, great statements from the ancient Vedas, from the Hindu thou art that. That is the infinite. Thou art that. You, that's your nature. That's what they want us to know. Everybody to know. Everybody has the innate capacity to know. That's what Kundalini relates to, is the innate capacity to know that. It's a Sanskrit term for it, a yogic term for it. But we all have the innate capacity because we are that consciousness. Right. Wow. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is exactly what I was hoping to get into in this conversation. It's one of these topics that is, it's a big topic, you know, I mean, naturally. But it's something that, you know, whether you're Christian, whether you're Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, if you look deep enough, you will find this truth in your religion. It might be, you know, it might be under many layers of mm-hmm. obfuscation or layers of, you know, rhetoric, but it's there. It's there for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. And I've, told, I've had the good fortune, the privilege to, in my various programs I've been invited to do, to teach nuns, rabbis, priests, even a few Native American chiefs. And they're all going, oh, this is just like our tradition. Oh, this Talk about. Right. Have the automatic dogmatic defensiveness and could let that understand me and then go, this is the same. This is fabulous. We're all talking about the same thing. The divine is everything. We want, we should then relate to it as that. We should see it, know it, and then relate to my life, relating to the divinity in each person, in the environment. How can I violate a person? How can I violate the environment when I know it's divine? Right. Now, yeah, and it's interesting because it feels like over the past 200 years, as you know, the world of information expands and we all have more access to each other, more access to every, you know, piece of information. It seems like this is a physical representation of something that was already within us. Can we Mm -hmm. talk about the Akashic record and how, because I hear 
people maybe throw this term around a lot, and I don't quite know if they know what it means when they say, mm-hmm. you know, it's like this Internet of Things in your consciousness. How true is that? Is the Internet, uh, in a way, like a sort of physical manifestation of this Akashic record? Right. Well, I think it's important to, to step back and, you know, Akashic record, meaning that, and, and it's tied into people's paradigms about there's no free will because it's all in the Akashic record. And if it's already written down what's going to happen 600 years from now in the Akashic record, then the path to there can't be altered and therefore you don't have free will. And we have to have a, an understanding. Again, this to me taps into how concrete people get in their thinking, including their concrete thinking about Akashic records, about these, what are metaphysical concepts, not physical. Concrete thinking is okay for the physical realm, metaphysical and symbolic, different form of thinking. This is really important, and especially, you know, given the modern psychologist, Jean Piaget, and Piaget did a lot of research on the nature of cognitive development in human beings. And, and he was able to delineate through the research as a child growing up, how they move through different phases of cognitive development. And there's a level at which, and the population of how many people achieve the higher levels gets smaller and smaller. So, Concrete operational thinking, that's more for the general population is caught in that symbolic thinking. And that higher level of even the highest levels of operational thinking, he said it's a fraction of a percent of the population develop those cognitive capacities. And so they're interpreting things through the limitations of their cognitive framework and looking at things concretely and, and limited in their ability to understand symbolism. All our great myths, all our great religious traditions, all the words of mystics, because they're, they're trying to write. I mean, I write volumes of poetry. They're all symbolic. Jung talked about symbolism endlessly because these higher domains of consciousness, now words cannot encapsulate. Words are specific to a certain domain of consciousness, we rely on symbols because they point beyond themselves. They point beyond this domain. It's the old Zen saying, the Zen saying that says, don't confuse the finger with the moon. What is that? Words point at the moon, but it's not the moon. Concepts about enlightenment, satori, Akashic records, all these things, these are words desperately trying to point beyond themselves. But if we don't understand that, we take the words for the reality when they're symbolic, trying to point them beyond themselves. So to really understand that level of consciousness where things already are fully present here and now, like Akashic records, that actually takes an entire shift in our state of consciousness. Well, that's why a lot of these kinds of understandings in the yogi traditions, the Buddhist traditions, they're not worth talking about because they'll create confusion. They'll just spin around, spin around. 
engendering fear on one hand or despair on another or whatever because of the misinterpretations. Why don't you come to know the infinite and then you'll know directly for yourself. And then you also know it can't be spoken about. But you'll be free of fear because you'll know directly. And that's much of what goes on to me around people's discussions about free will, Akashic records and everything. It's people taking very concretely something that's beyond the ordinary mind's understanding and not doing the work, frankly, to shift your state. Enter the state where you can know this. You're not going to know it by speculative thinking. You're not going to know it by reading this author or that author. If you don't change your state and come to know who you are beyond all boundaries of mind and body, you will not know those truths. That's just the way it is. Right. Right. And there, there's a path to understanding this stuff. And as you said, it doesn't come through just sitting around <laughs> speculating about it, which I may be guilty of on this podcast. This is something we do a lot on this podcast. Is it, just it, it, speculate. It, it's in, it can be entertaining. It can get people's attention. Right. But, you know, I'm a sadhu, actually. And a, and a sadhu is just about one thing. Are you moving towards direct knowing or not? Right. And in this moment, is this going to take you closer to knowing the infinitude of your being or not? <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's maybe what people have been asking themselves listening to this conversation. And naturally, Kundalini might come to mind uh, about, you know, going direct. So let me lay this out for a moment. I've heard from multitudes of perspectives on this. I've read about it. I've read your work on it. But it seems like the kundalini force, this energy, is something, as you're describing, it's something that you work towards. You work towards cultivating. You work towards the, the experience of it. But I've heard other accounts maybe where people, and you're shaking your head no, so I'm already off to a bad start, <laughs> but I, I'll let you correct me in a moment. I've also heard experiences where people are just struck out of nowhere with this intense heat and they say, well, this must be a Kundalini experience and there are other reasons why they come to that co conclusion. So now that we're here, let's talk about this because right. I think a lot yeah, of people no, have misunderstandings perfect. about it. Yeah, because... Even, you know, again, if we're you know, to, to root it in the tradition out of which Kundalini comes, even I've heard about Kundalini, already is a sign that energy of consciousness is stirring in you. Your interest in transcendence, your interest in going beyond the mind, even if you're not expressing it in yogic terms, is already the ripening process and the stir of this power. Now, when it begins to more dramatically awaken, and that can happen spontaneously or as a result of various practices. I mean, many of the yogic practices were done to try to, in a sense, hasten the ripening process. There's a natural ripening process, and then you get to a certain point, you go, well, can I make it happen a little better? So, okay, if I, you know, chant this, meditate like this, maybe you can. And it's more, oh, you're putting yourself out in the sun. Now, if you want to ripen your tomatoes, keep them in the sun, right? That sun of grace is the light of yourself. And the practices help you remain in that. And so they help ripen you 
So this spontaneous awakening happens. And that can happen for people even without having known about it in this lifetime. So in the yogi tradition, there's a term called the yogi brashya. And it refers to a person who began doing yoga, sadhana practices in a lifetime, didn't complete it, didn't become enlightened, free. So all the benefits of that carry over to their next lifetime. Well, they'll proceed on there and maybe awakening happens. The, the notion is in some lifetime, this, this power, this innate power to know the infinite as yourself, that is the key to the highest attainment. It will awaken. But in successive lifetimes, you get closer and closer. You may begin having then the spontaneous reemergence of that or the spontaneous first emergence that you're aware of that happening. It can be dramatic. It can be subtle. It can be very disruptive, especially if a person had no idea that, you know, who they are. For most people, if you ask them who they are, well, they'll talk about the nature of their roles they play as the their body, their relationships, all these things. You know, I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm a professional, I do this, I do that. Blah, blah. Um, and that's, the ego mind thinks it's the only one home. Now, this power of consciousness, it still starts moving. Starts, you're used to, my hand only moves when I say, move like this. You start having what are called kriyas, what happens in spontaneous movements in kundalini active people they'll go into mudras handshakes body shakes all these kinds of things can be happening and the ego mind's going wait a minute i'm not doing anything. <laughs> what is this i'm freaking out if you don't have the understanding the hold it and say oh that's grace unfolding look at you that's fabulous and it wasn't just unique to yogis that's happening in other spiritual traditions the christian tradition quakers why were they called Quakers? They quaked. They were having Kriyas. Shakers, they shook. They were having Kriyas. Speaking in tongues. But all these things are Kriyas. So they're known. St. Francis of Assisi was known to levitate. They used to have to hide him at certain times. So these kinds of manifestations of this innate power of consciousness are known in other traditions. They're very explicitly talked about in the ancient Kundalini and yogic traditions. And so, yes, you can suddenly, what to the mind seems spontaneous out of nowhere, because the ordinary mind, what do you know about your past lives? What do you know about the evolutionary process that your soul has gone through for the last hundred lifetimes? Not the last million, we'll just say with a hundred, maybe the last 10, not accessible to most people. So when something as a result of that happens in this lifetime, we go, oh, that came out of nowhere. It never comes out of nowhere. Wow. Yeah, that's such an interesting point you make, and I really am glad you made it because, it, yeah, we take this perspective we have for granted and yeah. oftentimes don't even consider that there were a hundred lives before that. And, you know, I can't say for sure why I resonate with that and I know that to be true. I know if I talk to reincarnation, you know, talk to my grandmother about reincarnation, she would say, well, I'm going to heaven. I'm not, you know, there's no other life for me. And that's fine. I'm not going to argue with her. She's in her 90s. But it does seem like even from her perspective, she's got this sort of mysticism 
because, you know, she grew up in a rural area in Canada. She went to church pretty much every mm-hmm. week of her life. And she and her past husband, my grandfather, who passed away a couple of years ago, they both have had, and he had, when he was still alive, these very strange dreams where they would sort of seemingly communicate with uh, their relatives who had already passed. And I don't quite know how they reconcile that within their Catholic kind of worldview, but from this perspective that we're in right now, how would you explain something like that where maybe our soul is communicating with the forms of our friends are those the are those them their soul presenting that form you know or is it like a an energy and allness of them that stays with us even after they've departed well it, it can be a number of things it can be it can even be how deeply we took them in and they are part of our unconscious mm. dreams i mean jung would write about that and how the psyche and through dreams is trying to communicate with us and uh, the, the larger psyche than just the ego mind. And so the dreams, you know, you'll look this dreams is sort of a royal pathway to greater knowledge and wisdom, especially about our own individuation or evolutionary process in this life. And that it summons up in dreams, people who constellate a particular meaning that's important for us to, to reconnect to and understand. And so we can understand. And then on that level, we can, uh, the, what's the energetic And as it has moved on to incarnate in another lifetime, you know, and so the, it's taken another form, but here's a problem for the poor mind. The mind is a linear instrument bound in time and space. Remember what Einstein said about time and space? They are just, they're part of this domain. They're not all that is. Time and space come in together. Consciousness, when we talk about the eternal, that is beyond time and space. It's all encompassing. It's not, eternality isn't a long time. It's beyond time. And it holds the linear timelines within that. Uh, so this is very hard for the poor mind to, to sort of uh, contemplate or get a hold of because it's, it's a linear instrument for working in time. It's how the mind was, in part, its purpose is created. But, you know, think about the book on my bookshelf. The, the whole book exists in this moment. Every page, every word, every everything. Can you just grasp the book all at once? No. You have to read it word by word. Your mind is a linear processing unit. It can't grok. You go, and you got the whole book. It can't download matrix. No, even that was linear. No, this is, there's a whole other domain that is completely nonlinear, all encompassing, all now. And it's literally inconceivable. It's literally unimaginable to the mind. And, and that's what we have to leave. That's what the great mystics talked about. Meister Eckhart, great Christian mystic. So you know what the last obstacle to God is? God. So he said, what do you mean? 
your concept of God. Even as you say God, you have a concept, a belief structure, whatever it might be, however vague it might be. That's not the reality of the infinite divine. Wow. Yeah, it just it came to mind because it seems like there's this whole world of entities outside of us like we as human beings maybe we we don't quite take this into our everyday waking consciousness but all over the world people report you know ghosts or these kind of odd creatures you know being sighted and i i was just maybe curious where that fits into this overall understanding of god you know and from the vedic perspective you know how do they make sense of all these entities and non-human presence the non-human presence on the earth if there is any right oh they recognize them again they're one pointed on i'm not interested in that i'm interested in the one who gave birth to it all right but they recognize it and even do practices so in the tibetan buddhist tradition if I was doing, you know, a retreat or a program informed by that, especially, but you often, anyway, because I studied and practiced in it, ghosts, they're these entities, these consciousness locked into contracted form, but not physical form that wander the realms and they're considered hungry ghosts because they're so hungry. It said they have, a, you know, a, a stomach as big as the ocean and a mouth as small as a needle. So they're tortured by this ravenous appetite and this inability to take in what we've shown them. It's a beautiful depiction of many humans as well. <laughs> so, <laughs> but in recognition of that, because you know, compassion is the forefront of Buddhist practice, you're doing practices, they say, well, it's going to attract the hungry ghosts and they might disrupt the practice. So what you do is you go to the four corners, the, or the four quarters of, you know, the compass and you put out offerings to the hungry ghosts that will feed them at the level that they can be fed. And there are particular kinds of substances or mantras and things that you would put out. So you're not rejected, not evil. They're, you have great compassion because they're tortured by their hunger uh, and they are seeking to be fed. So you feed them so that they don't disrupt the practices that are here for the humans uh, that have shown up and all the Buddhas who have showed up to bless that. Initially, that there, there's a continuum of manifestation of consciousness across domains. Uh, elevated domains as well as, you know, contracted toxic domains. But that creation isn't, again, just what the human experience of being in this physical form is. There's a recognition that there's a continuum of manifestation, including different beings of different realms. Right. Right. Yeah. And I appreciate, you know, letting me indulge in these kind of questions because it, you know, it's not often that I, I get a perspective like yours on the show, and there's tons of things that I think can be explained from this perspective. Of course, the yeah, I've, and I've had experiences with that. I read it was a, a a woman who I got to know when I was running a actually it was a 
a Jungian-oriented psychiatric treatment center in Litchfield, Connecticut. Oh, wow. And so years ago when I was living up in Litchfield, and there was a person who had some very unusual experiences. And when she heard I was about, all about meditation and everything, uh, I was the vice president and assistant executive director of the place. And she was a kind of a junior summer staff. Uh, but she heard that she confided in me. She says, well, I you know, don't think I'm crazy, but maybe you will. But this, I keep seeing this horrible, disfigured face coming out of things. I'll, I'll open a closet and this face comes screaming out at me. Or I'll open the dryer and his face comes screaming out. And I'm, I'm completely freaked out. I'm like, I'm afraid. Of, I, I don't know what's going on. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That's, yeah, I mean, you know, we could look at it that in any number of different ways. But let me just sit with that. Let me just, you know, my training and perspective is open the doors of wider consciousness, like in meditation, and see what happens. And I was living in Philadelphia. I was commuting back and forth. And he was doing my doctorate at Temple's University. I was down in Philadelphia. And a couple of days later, I'm in meditation. And that a face comes screaming at me like that. Out of the darkness of, you know, the void of meditation, this screaming face and comes right at me. And then it just goes right by my face. And I went, hmm, that's interesting. No, I, I called her a day or so later and I described because she hadn't described it and I described the look of the face. She goes, that's, that's it. That's it exactly. And I said, oh, I don't know. Now to me, that face, it looked, it looked terrifying. Well, it was certainly terrifying to that woman, but seeing something coming through me out of nowhere, that would be terrifying no matter what it is. But, but meditation makes you very steady. When Buddha talked about unshakable steadiness, peace, equanimity, he meant unshakable. So the next day I'm going into meditation, the same face comes screaming out at me. Only now it stopped right in front of my face, right there. And it was terrified. It was in such pain. I just sat looking at it. I just, my heart went out to it. And in that meditation, in a sense, I reached my hand its face, just very lovingly. It was gone. Next day I called the woman, she goes, it, it's gone. Wow. It's just gone. Wow. That's beautiful. And I, you know, I think that's, it's so informative and, you know, Halloween is tomorrow. So maybe that's why I'm asking about this kind of stuff. But, you know, people generate so much fear in those sorts of situations. And to face that encounter or that experience with love and compassion, maybe that's exactly why we're being confronted by these beings so that we can help them in whatever situation they're in and from their realm and the fact that they're interacting with us, you know, wow, that's really incredible. And, you know, it, it brings to mind, I think, you know, this whole idea of how fear is this egregoric entity and, and hate can even be this way. I was reading this book by Charles Fort and one of the explanations Charles comes to is maybe 
it's hate. Maybe this these weird things that are happening to people is like some sort of hate or jealousy manifesting physically somehow. And he comes to that conclusion as he usually does in his book, just throws it out there and lets it sit. Mm. And now that we're we're talking about this, I'm like, yeah, maybe that's you know something that goes on where you know you get these emotions that sort of they grow and they just want to be resolved and if the person generate the generating them can't resolve it it like goes to other people who are then maybe uh, given the opportunity to to resolve it but wow yeah this is really a really uh, unexpected turn in our conversation that i do appreciate mm. you, you sharing that anecdote mm. with us and it's you know and it's in the eastern traditions especially but i think all mystic traditions christian Sufi, yogic, meeting things, meeting all reality. You're meeting God. Meet it with love and compassion. Now, sometimes that love and compassion is expressed firmness, boundaries, but you don't give up the view that what you're encountering is the divine. You know, it's like there was a great master, Swami Vivekananda, who was a um, disciple of Ramakrishna Paramahamsa. And Vivekananda one time was writing about, you know, Ramakrishna saying this all, it's all God. It's all God. Everything is God. He said, but tiger God, you avoid. Dirty water God, you don't drink. So you still know it's God, but you act appropriately in relationship to it. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And <laughs> Yeah, that's something that I would not want to worship is Tiger God. Who knows right. what, what kind of <laughs> experiences follow that. But right. yeah, it's really, you know, I think it's so simple. It sounds too good to be true. And I'm really glad that we were able to spend almost two hours now talking about it because, you know, sometimes that it does feel like with these conversations like oh but how are we going to spend two hours talking about something so simple and i think it takes lifetimes even for people to understand those concepts in, oh, yeah. in a way that that you know they can actually do something with them and you're certainly a testament of that so as we wind down and and wrap up here would you mind telling the folks a little bit about how they can get more from you, how they can get in touch and even take part at Anamkara, right? You, you have yeah, online yeah. courses and online yeah. events that people can participate in. Yeah, we have, you know, there's a lot of resources, free resources on the website, thesoulsjourney.com. And that has numerous podcasts, all freely available, links to other resources, links about my books, Anamkara Meditation dot o-r-g anamkara is a-n-a-n as in mary c-a-r-a meditation.org and that has links then to all the free videos all the resources this is really about for me it's a life of service and making things as freely accessible as possible so twice a, a month on the first and third thursday evenings i do a free hour and a half meditation program uh, via Zoom, that uh, the link is on the website. People are welcome to come as frequently and frequently as they like. So it's about making these things freely available and accessible to people. 
because that's my dharma. I love it. And I'm so blessed. I feel blessed and really grateful to have you here and to have your book and had no idea that you're so close this whole time. I've had your book for more than a decade. I had no idea you're in the same state as me. You even worked in Litchfield. That's amazing. We ought to get coffee sometime. But anyways, this is really great. And all the links that you just described will be in the description. So folks, just go right there and click and follow up with Dr. Edwards. And yeah, this is really great. I'd love to have you back on again in the future. And until next time, folks listening... Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this edition of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Dr. Lawrence Edwards. He is a very, very inspirational guest. I really think this was one of our most profound interviews that we've had based on the subject matter. So yeah, I'm excited to put this one out. There is more that you can hear from this interview. If you sign up to support the show, you also get an ad-free version of the show. That's right. We are doing ads now. I recently switched hosts. My podcast host was charging me $100 a month. And this new podcast host that I'm using only charges me $30 a month and they're going to pay me because unfortunately, uh, not everybody wants to support the show. But if you like this show, if this is your favorite podcast, don't be disappointed. You can hear the show ad free for as little as $5 a month. Just sign up on the Patreon or the Substack. All of the episodes are there. Patreon is the best deal in my opinion. And if you've use patreon before and were frustrated guess what they just revamped their whole website uh, their whole app all the way down to the logo everything's new and better and works better so patreon's really just a whole new app if you had trouble in the past with patreon uh, i would say give it a try again if you don't well try substack it's just as good maybe three dollars more but still You'll get every episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast ad-free. And you get bonus episodes and all sorts of additional content articles when I have time to write them. Uh, and yeah, I've been doing a bonus show each week with Juan uh, where we dive into some very strange and arcane topics. Uh, Juan wants to call it Falconelli Fridays. I think that's fine for now, but we're not just going to talk about Falconelli uh, it's going to be similar to Illuminati confirmed, but uh, maybe more of an emphasis on finding interesting stories and talking about them on the show. So sign up and support the podcast and you'll get more from this interview. Me and Dr. Lawrence Edwards, we talked about the darker side of Kundalini and uh, yeah, it was very interesting. We also talked about uh, cannabis, which I don't know if that made it into the free side of the show, but uh, either way, support the show now. The link is in the description. And because of the whole host switch thing, hopefully you guys 
didn't notice any uh, changes, but if you do notice anything, if there's anything that doesn't work, any episodes from the archives that don't work for you, uh, just send me a message on Instagram or uh, send me an email. My email is uh, in the episode description. So check that out. And yeah, thanks for tuning in, folks. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijack your perception Tricking the population with holographic projections We see through it The system is unraveling I'm astral traveling Through the library of the Vatican On a sacred journey I embark with the squad Forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod Gotta know the facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap Dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade I awoke in a deep underground military base Zero recollection of how I got to this place Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders Must have been extracted when they crashed into us Animal hybrids contained in the cages A lion with the eagle head Monkeys with reptilian faces Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit All of a sudden the wall flickers away Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft My getaway, I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Robin Fulber's plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light Fly into the sky, get flanked by six F-35s Gotta know facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers, searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety, is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade.